you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 is our passage for this morning. The longer I am at the work of preaching the Bible, the better sensitive I become to the necessity of preaching the whole counsel of God's word. What I mean by that is that there are a number of truths in the Bible that are counterbalanced. You may have truths from different perspectives that create a certain tension, that provide a certain balance of understanding. We have one such example in the passage that we're considering this morning. As Christians, we tend to give a great deal of emphasis to the notion of difficulties being characteristic of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul's initial encouragements to the church in his missionary journeys was a simple sermon as Luke records it. Through much suffering and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not exactly the kind of thing we would consider as terribly encouraging, but that is Paul's message to the church. Jesus said we must take up the cross and follow after him. That's become something of a slogan, a mantra among Christians in the 21st century. But that was the emblem of death, the mark of death and suffering, torture and torment in a first century context. Jesus even said the birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the ground have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All over the Bible, there are references to the difficulties of walking with Jesus. And that tends to be, because we are inclined toward negativity, our place of emphasis. But I want to tell you this morning that there is something more difficult than walking with Jesus. It's walking without Jesus. And over the course of time, because of various misrepresentations of the Bible, because of the misinterpretation of the message of the gospel, because of outright heresy that exists in much of the world under the guise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have grown reluctant and even embarrassed to talk of the tremendous blessings that come with walking with Jesus. And I'm not just talking about those kinds of things that we're more comfortable in talking about. We have joy and we have peace in walking with Jesus. I'm talking about the tangible, measurable benefits of walking with Jesus, outcomes in parts of our life, usually reserved to more secular parts of our life, at least in our mind, where walking with Jesus just benefits us. You might be surprised this morning at the kind of things that walking in wisdom can benefit you with regards to. We'll see a series of them in the passage that we're going to read. I just want us to celebrate this morning that although there are difficulties that come with walking with Jesus, it is a much preferable road than to walk without Jesus. That there is tremendous benefit and blessing to walking in the wisdom that God has prescribed for us in his word. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. If you would join me as we stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. Proverbs 3 and verse number 1. My son, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commands, for they'll bring you many days of full life and well-being. 
Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you'll find favor and high regard in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways, and he will guide you on the right paths. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. And your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Don't despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and don't loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. In the structure of Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, there are two verses that are thrust to the fore. Verses 5 and 6 are the primary verses in this section. They're the two verses you are probably most familiar with in the passage, and perhaps the two verses you are most familiar with from all of the book of Proverbs. Verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And in the language of the King James, which you likely remember of these verses, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will lead you in the right path. There are basically two commandments in those two verses, one positive and one negative. The first positive command is that we would trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord is where the force of our passage lies. Trust in Jesus. I can remember being a fairly new believer, having been born again six or eight months, and wrestling with this apparent contradiction, searching the Bible to resolve a particular issue. The issue was born out of one of the best known verses in all of the Bible, John three sixteen. Where the Bible says that God has so loved the world that he gave his own son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I had believed on Jesus. And that belief had radically changed my life. Within a very brief window of time, I was an altogether different person. But I lived in a situation where most of the people around me, in fact, virtually all of the people around me, would affirm belief in God, at least superficial belief in the existence of God. And yet, they had not experienced the same kinds of transformation in life that I had and was currently undergoing, am still undergoing by the power of the gospel. How do we sort through the kind of belief that saves everlastingly and the kind of belief that James speaks to whereby the demons believe and they tremble? How do we separate those two things? And I thought, well, maybe I'll find help in the distinctions that the Bible makes. And I began to search the scripture with regards to the language of faith and belief. And what I found is that often the Bible uses trust in a way that is virtually synonymous with the language of faith or belief. In fact, in different contexts, the same word can be rendered with either faith, belief, or trust. There is an element of trust that involves itself in saving faith. 
Not just believing in the existence of God, but believing God. Trusting that his word and his promise is true. Virtually all of our life stands to be impacted by that basic observation. That saving faith is about trusting God. Every act of obedience can be reduced to the idea of trusting God. Every act of disobedience can ultimately be reduced to the idea of distrusting God. Why would a person steal? Because they don't believe in the provision of God, the promise of God to provide for the needs of his people. Why, why would a, a person commit the act of adultery? Because they don't believe the promise of God that our needs, our fulfillment, our satisfaction is better answered for, better accounted for within the bonds of marriage than without. Every act of obedience comes down to trusting God and every act of disobedience boils down to distrusting God. Here we're called upon to trust God, but not to trust him. In the broadest sense or with a partial confidence or partial trust, but to trust him with all of our heart. We have partial trust in certain people. We dole out trust. We evaluate a person's reliability and then we entrust to them on the basis of our assessment. One of the fun things about preaching through Proverbs has been trying to be conscious of and think through the various Proverbs from within our culture and the Southernisms that we have. We do this better in the South than virtually anywhere else in the world. You have heard older men in your life no doubt say, I wouldn't trust him any further than I could throw him, right? Or we will assign to him some menial task and say he could or could not be trusted with this responsibility or this job. And the job we choose in our phrasing of the statement will determine the extent to which we do or do not trust him. In terms of interpersonal relationships and our interactions with one another, we assess a person's reliability and then we assign the appropriate degree of trust to them on the basis of our assessment. But there is only one way to trust in God, and that is with all of our heart. This passage and many others attest to the reliability of God, the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God to meet all of his promises with a yes and amen. The Bible says here positively, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then there's the negative half of, of that command or the second command in our passage, which is lean not on your own understanding. In other words, trust God, but don't trust yourself. The heart is the seat of the emotion in some way involved in our intellect, our way of thinking, how we process or reason through certain things. The raising of this metaphor speaks to the need to lean away from our heart, its direction, and its fickle nature into the infinite wisdom and counsel of our God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Which is to say, on the one hand, don't trust your heart. You can't trust your emotions. You shouldn't trust your emotions try to counsel my kids with regards to this matter, my wife with regards to this matter. I often preach this sermon to myself 
with regards to this matter. Do not trust your emotions, your feelings. They are fickle. They are ever-changing. I can change all of your emotions easily. It just takes a pill. If you go down to your local physician and you express to him how it is that you're feeling today, in all likelihood, he can scratch out uh, illegibly something that you could take by mouth that will completely alter your feelings, your affection, your perspectives, your outlook. You simply cannot trust your emotions. They are not always an accurate reflection of the realities that exist around you. Don't trust your emotions. But in all your ways, acknowledge God and trust in him. Can't trust your wisdom, your intellect, your insight. Verse 7 says, don't consider yourself to be wise, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. <laughs> Think of this for a moment. How old are you? I'm 41 years old. I can look back at 31-year-old Wade and say, that guy was an idiot. And 31-year-old Wade could look back at 21-year-old Wade and say, that guy was an idiot. And there will come a day, God willing, when 51-year-old Wade will look back at 41-year-old Wade and say, that guy was an idiot. The point that I'm making here is that we all have a standpoint evaluation of ourselves. And whether we like to concede this or not, either five minutes from now or five years from now, we'll look back at ourselves at this place in our life and say, he or she was an idiot. We are limited in terms of the scope of our experience, our insight, our wisdom is finite relative to the infinite wisdom of an omniscient God. Do not trust your wisdom, your insight, or your experience, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Trust in the Lord. Trust him. Be careful that you're not trusting yourself. Now, what Solomon has done under the inspiration of God's spirit is to capture in these 12 verses areas of our life that are likely to create in us the kind of anxiety that often leads to self-reliance. In other words, there are certain parts of our life that often create an environment in which we, we tend to be self-reliant or not to trust in God. And you might be surprised at the kind of areas and issues that are going to come up in the verses that we'll cover in our time together. Areas of our life where God promises that walking in wisdom will yield good outcomes for you. In other words, this is not just a blanket invitation, trust God, don't trust yourself. This is trust God, don't trust yourself, and in doing so, there's some real positives that stand to come with it. Go back to verse 1. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they'll bring you many days of full life and well-being. What has been promised in the passage is a good, long life. In the general sense, Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 says, if you'll walk in the wisdom of God, leaning not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledging him, if you will trust in God, in the general sense that Proverbs intends to communicate truth, you will have a good, long life. Now let's process that for just a moment. Do all Christians live long lives? No, they most certainly do not. Does God promise in our passage that wise people 
will without exception live long lives. No, he most certainly does not. But in general, in that way that Proverbs intends to communicate truth, does walking in wisdom contribute to well-being and length of life? Absolutely. Wisdom dictates that you won't walk out into traffic this afternoon. And if you violate that principle of wisdom, your life will be cut abruptly short. This is an obvious way that wisdom works itself out in improving our sense of well-being and length of life within this context. But there are a myriad of other ways. Walking in wisdom generally contributes to one's sense of well-being and even provides some degree of improvement in the condition and quality of their life. Look at verse 3. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you'll find favor and high regard in the sight of God and man. Trusting in God, walking in wisdom, means finding favor with God. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. It's, it's obvious that there'd be this connection between trusting him which is the equivalent of having faith in him or believing in him, that that would result in finding favor with God. This is the mechanism whereby we are saved. We are saved by grace through faith, through belief, through trust, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that faith is the gift of God himself. God is operating. God is working through our trust, through the gift of trust, through the gift of faith, through the gift of belief in order to save us from our sin. That in the day of judgment, he might look upon us and see not us for the things that we have done, but the righteousness of his son Jesus in which we have been clothed. Christ has taken our sin upon himself at the cross. By faith, his righteousness has been transferred to our account. We have found by faith in Jesus the affirmation, the approval, and the favor of our God. Amen. Walking in wisdom, trusting in him, means finding favor with God. That's apparent enough. Our new covenant theology helps us to bear that out in great detail, but that is not where the passage stops. Not only are we said here to find favor and high regard in the sight of God, but in addition to that, in the sight of man. Walking in wisdom in that general way that Proverbs intends to convey truth means you'll find favor You'll be, build lasting relationships. You'll forge bonds with other people walking in the wisdom of God. I got a little hobby horse. I'm going to hop on for just a minute. I am done. I am over. I am past done with people as believers who are brash and prickly and defensive who always say dumb things that hurt other people's feelings, that embarrass and offend. And every time they embarrass or offend, they assign that experience to their walk with Jesus. It is true that Jesus said he'd bring division. There will be relationship difficulties that come with our walking with Jesus. But if you're offending every person that you meet, it likely has nothing to do with your relationship with Jesus and everything to do with the fact that you're a big jerk. 
walking in wisdom, generally, characteristically, in that broad way that Proverbs intends to convey truth, means that you'll be clothed with a certain mercy, with a tenderness in speech, with the kind of empathy and sympathy for those around you. You'll be clothed with a diplomacy that helps you to draw near to other people, that God would go before you opening the heart's doors of people in order that you might be received warmly and gladly. You read the book of Acts and you might be surprised at the number of times that the Bible describes the experience of the apostles as they enter into new territories where the Bible says that God gave them favor with the people. That God went before them as they were walking in the wisdom of God, entrusting themselves to him and all their ways acknowledging him. God was going before them, opening doors so they might receive a warm reception for the preaching of the message of the gospel. God is supernaturally involved in the forging of friendships, in the building of relationships, in the opening of doors in order that you and I might have favor with men for the purpose of preaching the gospel. This is precisely what God is promising in this proverbial way. Now, let me ask again, does walking in wisdom guarantee favor with man? No, it most certainly does not. Didn't Jesus say that the gospel would divide families and create enemies? Yes, he most certainly did. But in general, does walking in wisdom foster favor with others and contribute to healthy relationships? It absolutely does. You all likely know someone who is just socially awkward. And in your mind, you think that that is exclusively this personality issue, this limiting factor that's hard baked into them genetically, right? Usually weird people come from weird parents, right? But Proverbs and the Bible in general helps us to navigate sometimes awkward social situations. You, you may in your mind relegate social interaction to the more secular parts of your life. God is concerned with spiritual things over here, but in terms of interpersonal relationship, we've got this independent category. But you'd be wrong in divorcing those two one from another. Don't go to your neighbor's house too often, lest you become bothersome and he hate you. That's Proverbs kind of wisdom. Don't talk too much, lest you become bothersome and people hate you. That's Proverbs kind of wisdom. Don't nag the people around you, lest they, they grieve your approaching. That's Proverbs kind of wisdom. Social interaction is addressed in great detail. We're being equipped with, we're being clothed with the ability to play well with others, even in the teaching of the Bible. Again, God is not dismissive of these areas of our life, but he's equipped us with his wisdom in his word to navigate the circumstances of life in a successful and God-honoring way, in a way that makes the right choices without compromising our integrity. The best thing that you can do to position yourself to enjoy the favor of man is to walk in the wisdom of God. Now look at this. Look at verse 7. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. The literal rendering of verse 8 is this will heal your navel 
and make your bones moist, which is kind of gross. <laughs> but what's being expressed idiomatically is just what is translated. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. What's being promised in our passage here is physical health, right? And you might think, again, this is over in another category that's not impacted by our spiritual life. But oh boy, it certainly is. Let's be honest with ourselves for just a moment. We are not known stereotypically as people of the South, nor as people of Mississippi, for all of our spiritual emphases and Christian devotion as physically healthy people. And, and that's, a, that's a conflict that in reality ought not to exist. Now by now, you can probably guess where our line of questioning is going to go. Does this passage promise that if we believe certain things and do certain things, that we'll be physically healthy? Absolutely, it does not. Does this passage promise that if we believe certain things and we do certain things, that we'll go without sickness? Absolutely not. Does this passage say that Christians won't be sick or have diseases or physical maladies or difficulties? Absolutely not. Some of the most faithful, spirit-filled people you'll ever meet live a life that is marked by some physical ailment, some disease, even terminal illness may be the chief characteristic of their life. But in that general proverbial way that we've referenced many times already, walking in wisdom positions us to enjoy good physical health and strength. If you guard against the gluttony that the book of Proverbs warns against again and again and again and again, it will have the effect in the general sense of improving your physical life and sense of well-being. If you embody the kind of discipline the book of Proverbs calls us to, the physical discipline that Proverbs calls us to, it will produce good health and strength in your life. This is not exclusively a Proverbs principle either. I would point you to the fruits of the Spirit, one of which is self-control. The ministry of the Apostle Paul where he relates the service of, of gospel ministry to the vocation of the athlete, the farmer, or the soldier. Jobs that require a great degree of discipline and devotion and determination. If you implement these wisdom practices in your life, they will benefit you in the general sense in incredible ways. You know, I was, I was talking between the first and second service earlier in the day to a couple guys. One of our pastors was part of that conversation. There's a, there's a part of this that, I, that makes me feel icky, right? Like, let me give you an example. I grew up to my granny telling me, if you fish on Sunday, you will catch the devil. And I can still see five-year-old Wade staring out her back glass, looking at that catfish pond that I so desperately wanted to fish in and hearing granny say, if you fish on Sunday, you'll catch the devil. Now here, now I know that Jesus is my Sabbath rest and I don't believe fishing on Sunday is a sin against heaven. Granny would still disagree. <laughs> but I just can't feel good about it, right? It's like it's baked into my psyche. And over the course of time, we, we have been so put off by and intimidated by the danger of veering in to, to prosperity gospel territory that we just stop talking about these things, right? And, and all I'm saying to you this morning is, we ought not be timid about or reluctant to speak to the blessing of walking with Jesus. 
There's too much negativity. When we talk about our relationship, well, I love Jesus, but all these bad things are happening. And we're inclined toward negativity. So we, we run in that direction in the first place. And I'm just saying to you this morning that there is something much harder than walking with Jesus, and it's walking without him. We can celebrate the blessings and the benefits that come with walking with Jesus. Here, physical health is celebrated as a regular outcome to walking in the wisdom of God. Well, look to verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. And your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. If you trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding with regards to financial matters, in that general way that Proverbs intends to convey truth, it will yield good, positive outcomes financially for you. You see, there's even an uneasiness about hearing that and, and feeling that and celebrating that. But we know almost intuitively that it's true. We know intuitively that it's true. Even those outside the body have the capacity to discern the truthfulness of such an observation. I can remember being an 11-year-old an 11 boy. I was a fifth grade student. And I had gone home on a Friday evening with my friend and spent the night. We lived in a little trailer on Dirt Road in Choctaw County, Mississippi. And I went to spend the night with my friend who lived in this house that you could get lost in on one of the nicest piece of properties on a great spread and everything was just different. And I listened to his family over the course of that night talk about their engagement with the church, their love for Jesus and all the back and forth. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it. But I'm looking around and I'm assessing the situation. My mother picked me up on Saturday and I can remember getting in that maroon Chevrolet Cavalier. There was a conversation that was in progress when I got into the car and there was some discussion about some financial difficulties that the family had experienced in recent days. That was a fairly recurring situation for us. And I can remember like it was yesterday as an 11-year-old boy saying from the back seat of that Chevy Cavalier, maybe we should go to church. Now, it was completely driven by self-interest. I didn't know anything of the virtues of the gospel. I didn't know anything of the church. I didn't know what they did down there. But I knew that this brother went and he's got this big house. And I knew we didn't. And I'm headed to this trailer on that dirt road. That's all I knew. There's, a, there's this sociological principle called redemption and lift. Now, I'm not telling you the Bible says if you get saved and you do certain things that you're going to be wealthy. Jesus was not wealthy. He divested himself of wealth in order that he might merit our salvation even in his poverty. And I'm so glad he did. And we should be ready and willing with glad-hearted joy to divest ourselves of any material gain that the world might know Christ as Lord and King of their life. But that doesn't negate the reality that walking in the wisdom of God, more often than not, in that way Proverbs intends to convey truth, will yield good, positive financial outcomes in our experience. The whole concept of redemption and lift is this sociological observation that typically when a person comes to faith in Jesus, they begin to make wise decisions with regards to their financial life, and there begins to be improvement in the circumstances of their life. Note what the passage says again here. 
Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. And your barns will be filled and your vats will overflow. Occasionally, I'll hear someone say that they're weary of hearing the church talk about or discuss financial issues. I don't know that I've ever heard that said about me personally. In fact, I've been frequently criticized for not speaking to these issues, but it's the product of expository preaching. I preach on financial issues as often as they come up in the text of scripture. But I got news for you. They're gonna come up often in the book of Proverbs. But this is not a self-serving emphasis on financial matters. In fact, the lion's share of what Proverbs has to say about money has nothing to do with what you give to the church or what you give to anyone else, but how you steward what God has entrusted to you. This is not shakedown stuff. This is the principle. God's saying to us, if you will manage, if you will steward what God has entrusted to your care, your financial position stands to be improved over time. Again, no guarantees, but in that way that Proverbs conveys truth, the general principle stands. As you begin to make wise financial decisions under the leadership of God's spirit, directed by the written word of God, in a general sense, that will yield positive outcomes. I've had more than a few people after the first and second service come to me and say, you know, when I got saved, my whole financial life changed. Now, in most of those instances, it's because they stopped drinking half of what they were being paid, or they stopped smoking half of what they were being paid, or they stopped gambling away half of what they were being paid. But, but, but there are bigger and broader ways that our financial life is shaped by our relationship with Jesus and our commitment to trust him in all our ways, acknowledging him. I want to go back to the primary command for just a moment. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding. The reason people make the decisions that they make is because they're convinced they're the right decisions to make. And I just want to remind you this morning that sometimes what God calls us to do is so counterintuitive by the framework of this world. There must be an element of faith involved with our trusting him in that particular matter. It is counterintuitive. It does not make sense that we would give of the first produce of our entire harvest and expect that that would be a, provide for a positive outcome, right? You would ordinarily think you want to make sure that you meet your needs or provide for the most urgent material demands that exist within your circle. But here we have a counterintuitive command that God promises by proverb to answer with sufficient provision. Verses 11 and 12 bring it into our passage, and I want to go there for just a moment. Don't despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and don't loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. It seems ill-fitting or misplaced within the framework of these promised blessings. But here there's a warning that if you deviate from the way of wisdom, there'll be consequences. If you spurn the invitation of the Spirit, determined not to trust the Lord, but rather to lean on your own understanding, you should expect 
that your deviating from the path of wisdom will result in some degree of consequence. There'll be pain that comes with unwise decisions, just as there is often blessing that comes with wise decisions. I've known a few people in life. Chances are you've known a few people in life. I have a couple of these brothers as a part of my circle, even right now. You've shared the gospel with them. You've prayed for them. You've loved them. Or maybe someone else has. Maybe someone else has better access. They're not open to you because of the closeness of relationship or just the circumstances of life. But, but you're watching them. And you have perceived that God is pursuing them. That God is after them. There's a couple of brothers in my life who I've just told, hey, man, I think God is after you. And, and it would behoove you to yield to his lordship before he takes even more extreme measures to grab hold of your attention. There might even be some people in this congregation that the Lord is pursuing. You've believed in that superficial kind of way that the demons believe and tremble. But you've yet to lay hold of the kind of faith-filled dependence and trust in God that has a radical and transforming effect on all of your life. God is seeking you. God is pursuing you. My counsel to my friends in recent days has been to note that God has never lost a fight. And he has never lost a race. And dear friend, if God is pursuing you, as you deviate from the way of wisdom, make no mistake, your deviation will be met with consequences. Just as there is reward at walking in wisdom, there is consequence at deviating from the path. God is after you, graciously, mercifully, compassionately pursuing you. And he, he never loses. He never loses. I can look back on my own personal experience. There, there were these milestones leading up to my conversion, wherein God was, at least by, by my perception, pursuing me. The faithful preaching of a Baptist minister, the faithful example of a godly grandmother, the circumstances of my life that prompted me to think about spiritual things. But I got to tell you, God finally caught me at over 100 miles an hour. He broke my body, brought me to my knees, and laid hold of my heart. And he'll catch you too. He's never lost a race, and he never loses a fight. And I'm just pleading this morning. Before you continue to incur the dreadful consequences of your unwise decisions that you would yield to the judge of all creation who always does what is right, who is infinite in his wisdom, and who always knows what is best. Sometimes I think we have this image of God where he's the wicked taskmaster, and he gives all these rules and obligations to take away our joy. That could not be further from the hope of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is this warm invitation that regardless of the rules that we have broken, that we might come to him weary and heavy laden and find rest, regardless of who we are, where we're from, what we've done in our past, how fiercely we have fought against the God of heaven. There is a place for us behind the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God promises there to endow us with the presence of his Holy Spirit that we might walk in wisdom, be the beneficiary of the benefits that come thereby. 
It is a difficult thing to walk with Jesus, and I don't want to say or do anything that would mitigate in our minds the challenges that often come, the trials and tribulations associated with taking up the cross to follow after him. But it's a far preferable path to walking without him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And for the wisdom we find here, we pray that you would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. God, I pray that your lordship would invade all of our life, whether it be those aspects that we typically regard as spiritual, those parts of our lives we ordinarily regard as secular. We ask, God, that you would give us a mind to trust you with all of our heart, in all of our life, in all things, above all things, and with all things. Help us, Lord, that we lean not on our own understanding. God, I pray that you would call the lost to yourself, that you would provoke the church to repentance over sin, that you'd bring to our attention, Lord, those moments in time, maybe they've become habitual, God, where we lean on our own understanding and not trusting in you. God, help us in these areas of life, the matters of longevity of life, physical health, relationships, and finance, God. These are areas of life, Lord, that create panic in our heart. God, help us to rest under the easy yoke of your son, Jesus Christ, Help us to trust you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.